Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What would you say you do here? (laughs) This is Deb Calvert, author of Discover Questions for Connections, Clarity, and Control. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Deb Calvert to talk about her book, Discover Questions for Connections, Clarity and Control, the 10th Anniversary Edition, published by Winston Keen James. As the founder of People First Leadership Academy and president of People First Productivity Solutions, Deb's work focuses on leadership development and team effectiveness. Deb's background as an HR director with a Fortune 500 company, along with her diverse experience in sales and operations, uniquely equips her to work across a variety of industries and functions. She was named one of the 65 most influential women in business, and her field research spans 25 years, 20 nations, and thousands of buyers and sellers. And interesting fact, her husband is the heir to the Calvert Whiskey fortune. We're in the money. We're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. Deb, congratulations on the 10th anniversary edition of Discover Questions, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome back, friend. I knew this day would come. (laughs) Douglas, there's no place I'd rather be. And I wish that what you said there at the end of the intro were uh, completely accurate. But uh, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Wait, your husband isn't the heir to the Calvert Whiskey fortune? Uh, nor the Calvert oil fortune, nor the Lord Baltimore Calvert side of things, but uh, oh. we're just we're just the run of the mill Calverts, I guess. You mean I've been drinking Calvert whiskey all week, getting ready for this interview, and and it's not even helping your husband's fortune. Oh wow, I thought I was going to at least get a a discount coupon for some Calvert whiskey. Well, oh well, sorry about that. You know, I try and do my research for these shows, but um, sometimes you know. Sometimes I miss it. Now, you still live on a farm in Peculiar, Missouri? Just outside of Peculiar, even more rural than the name of the town implies. I do. It's um, just a beautiful little oasis here. So it's outside the Peculiar metro area. 
Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Ten minute drive into town. Okay, yeah. And as I recall, I had to use a P.O. box <laughs> to, <laughs> just to get mail to you. So that's great. Well, listen, uh, it's great to have you back. You were on episode 165 back in 2018 about the book Stop Selling and Start Leading. And this will be episode 464. So... For those uh, playing the home game, that means about every 299 episodes can expect Deb Calvert to come back. So that means uh, the next one would be probably episode 763. So go ahead and pencil in August 24th, 2029, Deb. And you were also on the limited time series, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. So, you know, we've, we've had some good connections. We have. And would you like to know a fun fact? Well, this one's probably true, right? This one's true. Okay. <laughs> 763 was the prefix of my phone number growing up, and all my adult life, I've considered it to be a lucky number. So that, mark me in for 763. I'm there. Whether you have a book or not, and I don't know that you have anything penciled in for the year 2029 yet, but but now you do. You see, okay. I, it's all about helping my guests set goals, Deb. <laughs> okay. I, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. So... There's only three times I've been nervous to interview an author uh, on this show. And one was with the uh, former CNN uh, reporter, Frank Sesno, who you may recall. He wrote a book called Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. And there was a book uh, on the show by Paul Cherry, who you may know, called... Questions that sell the powerful process for discovering what your customer really wants. And now, this is the third time I'm really nervous, Deb. So I may, may not seem that way, and that I kind of loosened up by all the Calvert whiskey I drank this morning. But, you know, when I interview an author who's written a book about asking questions, it, it really makes me, you know, kind of nervous. Well, I, I commend your bravery because I've actually been turned down twice for podcasts because of. of people who thought exactly the same way, and they said, we just don't think we can do it. And, and I had confessed to one of them that, yes, as a question researcher, I do secretly, silently judge questions that people ask me, but I'm not obnoxious about it. <laughs> right, you were definitely not obnoxious. And the other thing that uh, works in my favor, as I've mentioned on uh, a previous episode, is that I have very little self-awareness and uh, no shame. So, I, you know, you knew by letting me know about this book that you, you were you were in. So, I, my recollection though is that you ask very very good questions. Wow. So that's why I'm here. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm gonna have to put that on the website now as an endorsement. So, Deb Calvert, a lot of people say to me, Douglas, you've read all these books, hundreds and hundreds of books, which I greatly enjoy doing, and and I love featuring authors. And they say, what's the best book? You know, if I only read one book. What would it be? You know, and, and people might think, oh, is it a book by um, Seth Godin or David Merriman Scott or uh, Philip Kotler, the father of modern marketing, or uh, maybe Robert Cialdini, author of uh, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And those are all fantastic authors, books, and so forth. But the best book, the best book that's been on the show, the only one that any listener really needs to read is by Sarah Cooper. And the book is 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. That book has transformed my working career. And of course, it's a uh, book that was featured on an April Fool's Day episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, and it's a hilarious book. And she's a comedian now, and she had a Netflix show. But I can't resist she has 100 tricks to appear smart in meetings, and there, there are few that have to do with questions. And I wanted to share those with listeners. And none of these, dear listener, are in Deb Calvert's book. So tip number three is encourage everyone to take a step back. And let me read what she says. There comes a point in most meetings where everyone is chiming in except you. This is a great point to go, guys, 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 can we take a step back here? Everyone will turn their heads toward you, amazed at your ability to silence the fray. Follow it up with a quick what problem are we really trying to solve? And boom, you've bought yourself another hour of looking smart. But wait, there's more. Let me ask another one. Number six, ask, will this scale no matter what it is? 
She writes, it's important to find out whether things will scale no matter what it is you're discussing. No one even really knows what that means, but it's a good catch-all question that generally applies and drives engineers nuts. And finally, number 64. Ask if we're asking the right questions. (laughs) Nothing makes you seem smarter than when you question the questions by asking if they're the right questions. If someone responds by asking you what you think the right questions are, say you just asked one. Okay, enough comedy jokes. So, Deb Calvert, can we go ahead now and and, and talk about your book? Certainly, although... I would have to disagree with you. I think Sarah is talking about this book. I think we're coming from some of the same side, so we'll have to get into that. Okay, okay. Well, moving ahead. Let's do it. Let me read from the introduction. You write, Discover Questions Get You Connected for Professional Sellers was released in 2013. A decade later, Discover Questions is still a bestseller and a game changer. The accolades include being named by HubSpot as one of the top 20 most highly rated sales books of all time. Voted one of the top new sales books globally in 2013 by Top Sales World and a foundational element in sales training programs for hundreds of organizations worldwide. The accolades that matter most come from readers. Discover Questions has helped sellers, business owners, coaches, and people in all sectors and job types. The notes of gratitude include hundreds of stories about how using Discover Questions has improved job performance and personal relationships. An FBI agent wrote to say, I'm not a salesman, but I use questions to investigate, interview, and interrogate. After reading this book, I've got some new questions that are working well. Your book should be a part of training for everyone in law enforcement. An unemployed graphic designer emailed, my girlfriend is reading Discover Questions for a company sales training course that you're teaching. I'm out of work and decided to scan it since she keeps talking about it. Well, I just finished reading it cover to cover. Now I know what I'm doing wrong in job interviews and in my personal relationships too. I'll be making major conversation changes. Thanks in advance for making me a better person. And finally, a new financial planner called to share his success story. He opened with, My job was on the line. I thought I wasn't cut out for this kind of work. After reading your book, I went from zero sales to the second highest close rate in the firm this quarter. As we talked, he described the modifications he made to questions used throughout his sales process. These notes, emails, calls, and social media posts are the fuel behind this new book, the 10th anniversary edition of Discover Questions for Connections, Clarity, and Control. Each affirms the value of asking quality questions and underscores the need for a framework that makes question asking more purposeful. So, Deb, on the book jacket, it says, now Discover Questions isn't just for sellers anymore, which kind of tips your hand as to what's different. But tell us more about what's different in this 10th anniversary edition. Oh, so much. Well, okay. So 10 years ago, there wasn't really all that much research about questions. There was a fair amount. But what I was doing was, at that time, a lot more groundbreaking than research that I've done since then. It seems like a whole lot of academic institutions and other folks came on the scene. So this book includes a lot more research. It's not all wonky and academic, though. I've tried to sprinkle it in there so that it uh, doesn't feel that way. But it, it there's more um, substance, if you will, from other sources. Not only that, I'm 10 years beyond the book, and I continue to do field re- research, so I've got a lot more curated questions in here. Um, you know, I, when I wrote the first book, I was reluctant to put a lot of question examples in because I, I do believe people ought to learn how to create their own questions instead of going down a scripted list of questions. So I was really on the fence with that first book. I included some, but not many. This one has more. Mm-hmm. And what else is different? Oh, of, But of at the end of the book, you talk about how you're not a fan of scripts. I'm not. I'm still not. I just see them take people in the wrong direction and box themselves in without knowing what to do with the information because they're not truly tuning into it. They're treating it more like a a survey when they have a script of questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Like a bad discovery call with a salesperson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing to keep from crying. Well, listen, just to step back for a brief moment, I don't try to talk about myself too much, but when I was in first grade, I was in a, a Catholic school, but we moved a lot. My dad was in the circus. And when I say circus, I mean the U.S. Army. So 
for some reason, I was in that school in uh, first grade, and there were these two nuns, and the one in charge was Mother Joubert, and she was uh, French-Canadian, and I think she was in her 80s at the time, you know, really knew what she was doing, pretty much no nonsense, and didn't put up with my foolishness very well. Anyway, one day when Sister Wren was leading the class, Mother Joubert said, you, come with me. And so I we... We walked outside, and we walked uh, across the campus to the uh, cafeteria. I was walking behind her just a little bit, <laughs> trying to keep up. And we go into the big cafeteria. This is a mid-morning, and it was empty. And she said, sit here. And so then she went and got a cup of coffee, and she came back and sat down across from me. And at that point, I asked her a question or two along the lines of, so wh- why are we here? You know, Why have you brought me here? what's going on? And she took a sip of her coffee and she set it down and she looked at me and she said, you ask too many questions. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I was one of the more ill-behaved children in that class. Uh, You know, she was doing the best she could. But Having said that, though, I'm, I'm sure she's gone on to her great reward. And look at me. I got a podcast where I get to ask questions. So it's all worked out well. But let me ask you, what are the myths and misperceptions of questions? Well, broadly speaking, that's what keeps us from asking more questions and asking better questions. We have a, a built-in apprehension or fear when it comes to asking questions, because you're, you're not alone. You're not the only one who's ever been told you ask too many questions, or that's a dumb question, or e- even three-year-olds who incessantly say, why, why, why? They get shut down. We get these negative messages about questions. So I started the book with a chapter called The Myths and Misperceptions About Questions, because I just want to blow it all up. And I want people to feel liberated. It's not nosy, for example, to ask good questions. It's nosy to ask bad questions if all you want to do is is get the dirt on somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's actually rude to miss that opportunity to connect with somebody, to ask a question that belongs in the conversation because someone has expressed something to you and not asking is dismissive or, or rude. It's rude to make assumptions instead of asking questions. And we do all those things because we have the wrong idea, thinking that questions are inherently bad when just the opposite is true. Questions are good. They're virtuous, so long as you make them high quality. Yeah, and you also talk about how asking a question makes people think that they don't have all the answers. (laughs) But the truth is, nobody has all the answers. And my trust in someone increases dramatically when they go, Wow, that's 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 a pretty good question. I actually don't know, but I can find out. That's my favorite compliment when somebody says, "Oh, that's a good question." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but th- I think there are people that are afraid of of not knowing. But yet, like I say, when somebody says, "I, I don't know," I just I, I trust them so much more. And I think people are afraid of you know maybe they're afraid of losing the control of the conversation. But can you talk a bit about how asking questions helps to form? stronger connections. Well, yes, although we probably don't have time to cover all of it. There are over 100 documented benefits to asking questions, all research-based. I'll be back in about 45 minutes to see how you're doing. No, I'm kidding. Okay, Uh, perfect. (laughs) This this book is so so concentrated with research. Uh, But yeah, so this is, just so the listener knows, this is probably frustrating for Deb because (laughs) there's so much in the book we can't cover. Uh, And I really want to get to the discover questions, but I... I'm asking questions about the ones that kind of hit me over the head, like the myths and misperceptions, but also somewhat counterintuitively how they help to actually form a stronger connection with people. Yeah. So let's take, for example, one of the best kinds of questions you could ever ask. That's a follow-up question. Mm. Your first question might be really good, but your second question, the one that proves you listened, the one that, that shows you cared enough to listen and to spend more time listening. A follow-up question is something that that creates bonds between people. It it can't help but do that. And it makes people feel cared about. It builds trust. And this could be a stranger that you just met. One question goes nowhere. The second question, that's where a relationship takes off or solidifies. 
You talk, I think it was on page 60, about the virtuous circle, which I found very interesting. Can you, which is the questions, clarity, control, connections. I wonder if you could talk about that, the virtuous circle. Yeah, that, that one's... Well, so the subtitle of this book is For Connections, Clarity, and Control. So I want to just spotlight clarity for a moment because that's what this circle is really about. You know, we live in a world right now that is saturated in way too much information and times are turbulent and all of us are a little on edge. One of the things that, that we're lacking is genuine clarity. And this gets exacerbated in organizations where we have make believe competencies like dealing with ambiguity instead of competencies that would make more sense like creating clarity. So what do you get from clarity? Well, clarity gives people an opportunity to reclaim control. When you understand something and then you can be confident, you can be a little more courageous, you've got an extra measure of control. And when you feel that sense of control and you're not all tied up in knots, it's a whole lot easier to connect with people. And what gets the whole party started is good questions, questions that clarify, questions that help you reclaim that control, questions that then liberate you to to form those more meaningful connections. And when you get the connections, well, that's when you ask more questions, and that's why it's a circle. A virtuous circle. So I can think uh, back to situations where I've been a buyer, and on the rare occasion when someone, a seller would say, so what you're looking for or, or they were they were asking a, a clarification follow up question and it just blew me away. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's so rare, but it also telegraphed to me they were actually listening and understood. And it could have been something as simple as buying a new HVAC system for my house. We all respond to people who ask questions. And you talked about Sarah Cooper earlier and example number three there. She was you know which was I loved it very humorous. I have to get the book, but what she was talking about. And all three of those examples you gave is something known as instinctive elaboration. And that's just a fancy way of saying, when you ask someone a question, especially one that shows you've already listened to them, asking a question compels them to stop, drop everything else, think about the question, and give you more of their attention. There's no way around it. And that's why you look smart when you ask good questions, is because everybody zeroes in on you on your question, and, and get super engaged. Well, let's jump to what I thought was you know one of the best quotes in the book, and there were many. That's on page 75, where you quote Albert Einstein. He talked about the importance of asking the right question. If I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on the solution, I would spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question... I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. (laughs) So talk about what makes some questions better than others. I know we joke there there are no no bad answers, but what makes some questions better than others? There is some truth and science behind this. Well, let's start with what it looks like when questions are placeholders or or throwaways. Like, hey, how you doing? Even that... (laughs) Even that, yes, they have limited impact. And then they start to sound like fishing expeditions. Okay, so I asked that one. Now what am I supposed to say? And, we, and we're messy. We're sloppy and lazy about how we ask questions, if we ask them at all. Whereas a, a purposeful question, one that drives directly to the information you're trying to extract, that's a time saver. That gets the reaction like you're describing of, wow, that was a good question. And I'm thinking now uh, there's value for me created in this instant because I'm thinking about the answer. I've never paused to take time and reflect on this. This is awesome. And then what comes next is the true magic, right? That the thoughtful information that either solves the problem or sheds light on the situation or uh, creates an opportunity to, to follow up and go down an entirely different path. So those kinds of questions, um, they have power because they, they steer the conversation to a new place that involves thought and emotion. And so the listener knows you have page after page of typical and then better. 
typical and better. In other words, the questions, you they have to be purposeful, clear, easy to understand, concise, singular, forthright, genuine, relevant, framed by intent, contextual, well-constructed. <laughs> Each one of them, you have like a little cartoon bubble saying, here's a typical question and here's a better one. So here's a typical one. This has to do with well-constructed. Did you consider enlisting help from the marketing team? A uh, question that you might have asked to the head of sales, actually. A better is, what are your thoughts about getting support from the marketing team? It just goes on and on. And of course, it's made me a tiny bit self-conscious uh, with my questions. But can you talk about some of the ones that are... Not serving people well. I think it's worth mentioning a few of these uh, that people are probably doing all the time and that make people defensive or not want to answer your questions or or not like you. Yeah. So I should say as a preface that all the questions in this book, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of them are from real live observations and and things that people have reported to me. And so we also know the outcomes of those questions. I'm not just making it up that this is good and this is better. Uh, but, But questions that fall flat, oftentimes it's because they've become trite. Every person who ever bought anything expects a salesperson to ask, what are your goals? Or something very similar to that. And there's no context. And it's not interesting. So how could you get the same information, but in a way that isn't going to produce some Pavlovian, okay, let's get it over with kind of a response. So let's set some context. As as you think about what you want to achieve in your podcast, Douglas, for the new year, what are some of the the top drivers of success that, that you're wanting to go after? Basically, I'm asking you, what's your goal for 2024? Right. But I made you think it in a different way. Yes, more specifically. Right. And that purpose, when you give me the information back, if I'm trying to sell you something, I will have different information than all of my competitors who asked you, what's your goal? We'll have a connection because I made you think and because I listened and asked you a great follow-up question. And I have an advantage now, a differentiation by virtue of nothing else but asking a slightly different question. Every one of these sections in uh, just this one part, page 81, questions that don't serve you well. Every one of these, uh, if I don't tell you how to illustrate your book, but you could almost make every one of them look like a a landmine. (laughs) (laughs) Ambush questions, gotcha questions, leading questions, ponderous questions, interrogation strings of questions, why questions, prying questions, ill-timed questions, faux questions. And I was always uh, sensitive to why questions. I remember being told years ago about how intrusive the word why is, and we'll touch on that uh, in, in just a moment. Now, as we've talked about, this book goes way beyond sales. It's You've got sections for leadership, for interpersonal communication, for coaching. Almost every chapter has sections for coaching, so it's really multi-purpose. But I'm always surprised at the number of salespeople who listen to the show or who, who say they listen to the show. Either that or all the salespeople are just very talkative. <laughs> so I want to zero in on a couple of sales uh, things. Uh, but having said that, everyone should understand it's not just for sales like the earlier edition was. Chapter 12, using questions in the workplace. There's one section on using questions for selling that I'd like to zero in on. That's on page 107. And it's where you talk about an analysis of millions of sales calls by Gong Labs mm-hmm. uh, proves the quality of questions asked by a seller boosts success rates and, and strengthens the connections with buyers. And their analysis also revealed that questions are the best response to objections. And, and there was a book on the show years ago by Jeb Blunt, who you probably know. His whole oh, yeah. book was – the book is called Objections, <laughs> and it goes into all of that. And I was wondering if you could walk us through the five-step process for invalidating objections, which is on page 108. Validate, clarify, yeah, probe, invalidate, and shift. It's just it's, – it's marvelous. I'm glad you like it. I've been teaching that for about 20 years, and <laughs> – uh, it, it's a little, it's a little strange to wrap your head around it, but once people do, they they do tend to like it. Yeah. Um, so step one and step two are both going to sound 
artificial at first till people try them and use them and then they'll see the value. But it goes like this. Step one is, is just to validate. So the buyer gives you an objection. Doesn't matter what objection it is. The first thing you're going to do as a salesperson is validate that you heard the objection. You're not going to validate the objection by magnifying it in any way. But you're going to validate that you heard and that it's okay for them to share with you. Because sometimes when you've worked with a buyer for a little while and they like you, um, they're a bit reserved and and they might not even give you the real objection. So we want to make this all safe. So they say to you, uh, your price is too high. To validate that, you don't say, oh, you're right. Like a lot of people say that. You're right. That validates the objection. (laughs) We're not doing that. We are saying, thank you for telling me that you feel that way. That's it. Just a validation. It's okay that you said this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that, even if it feels really artificial, then you go into the second step, which is to clarify. What's really cool about this step is sometimes when you simply repeat back what they said, sometimes they'll back off. Sometimes when they hear it, they realize it sounded kind of dumb or it wasn't authentic. So they they said to you- Or maybe uh, not exactly what they meant. Yes, we need to know this. So let's go ahead and kind of get our adrenaline under control and take these extra couple of steps to to get everything framed up. So they say your price is too high. Step one, you say, thank you for sharing that with me. Step two, so you feel like our price is too high. And don't worry, they're not going to say, well, yeah, aren't you listening? Because people love to hear their own words echoed back to them. Mm -hmm. They'll actually think you're kind of smart for for picking up on it. And step three is a really important step, also a strange one, but don't skip it. We call it to probe. And and what's going on in step three is that you're going to ask a question. And whether it's completely way out there in the realm of impossible, you're still going to ask the question. The question is just to find out if this is the real and only objection. So it sounds like if you didn't feel our price was too high, would you be proceeding with this proposal? It's close-ended, it's narrow, and you're not promising the price is going to come down if I could reduce the price for you. Nope. You're just finding out if that's the real objection. If you didn't feel, the word feel helps a lot in some of these. If you didn't feel the price was too high, would you be proceeding with this proposal? And they're going to do one of two things. Well, yeah, if the price wasn't so high, I'd love to okay, I got to do something about the price maybe, or at least help them understand the value. Mm-hmm. Or, well, no, uh, frankly, we're under contract for the next 5,000 years. Okay, now I know. <laughs> I know the real objection. I'll put that on the calendar. <laughs> um, and then you get to go, step four is where you probably are starting right now. Now you're going to invalidate the objection because you know it's the real, the true, the only objection. If it turns out it, it wasn't the real, true, only objection, you go back to the top. Oh, okay. Thanks for telling me about that contract. Um, so you're under contract for 5,000 years? You know, And if you weren't under contract for 5,000 years, would we proceed? And when we get the real objection... We're going to invalidate it, and we're going to shift the conversation step five back to value because you would have asked questions by now to help you understand what they really value. I can remember in sales training years ago, someone saying, you know, when they teach psychiatrists or psychologists, uh, one thing they want them to know is that the first problem the patient brings you is never the real problem. Mm-hmm. And so this is, uh, this is just fantastic. So let me just recap this. Here's an example I want to read. Uh, from that same page. So it's the buyer and then the seller. So the buyer says, we're already under contract with another provider. Or I, I can hire this many times in my agency days. Yeah, we already have an agency. The seller says, okay, thank you for letting me know that, which is the validate. And then the seller says, so you're currently under contract with another provider, uh, which is to clarify. And the buyer says, yes, our contract expires in about six months. Mm. So the seller says, if you weren't under contract, would you consider hearing about our services? That's the probe. And finally, the buyer says, sure, we're always interested in learning about what's out there. But without those questions, it's like trying to open a can without a can opener. So I thought that was uh, that was great, and it really works well. I've used some of those in the past. So 
I, I want to go to what I think is the meat of the book, which is the Discover Questions framework, if that's okay. Absolutely. And uh, you write that knowing why you're asking questions makes all the difference in how effective your questions will be. And that there are only eight purposes for asking questions. <laughs> Deb Calvert, such clarity. There's only eight purposes for asking questions. That's what was so striking to me. And I appreciate you getting it just down to those eight buckets, because it seems like it could have been a hundred. And to make it easy to remember, each of the eight purposes is represented by a letter in the acronym DISCOVER. So it's data, issue, solution, consequence, outcome, value, example, rationale. All questions are within one of those eight. So in our remaining time, I would like to briefly walk through each of those and say a few words about each one. I think many listeners will recognize what types of questions they're probably currently asking, and maybe uh, they'll hear of some that they haven't been using, but they, they could. And you write on page 130, when you know and plan around the eight purposes for asking a question, everything is easier. <laughs> Conversations are smoother. You'll get to the information you're seeking much faster and without collateral damage. So let's walk through them and let's start with D. Data. You write that there's only one correct answer to a data question. So please explain what a data question is. It's the facts, just the facts. And if you were to ask two different people, you'd get the same answer because the answer is factual, it's proven, it's known or easily accessed because somewhere, somehow, it's, it's locked in as factual. So explain why data questions should be used sparingly. When you want they're, to build a connection. <laughs> they're boring. Right. <laughs> so if I, if I ask you something that you already know, you can recite the answer to me or you can get the research. And I didn't stimulate any thought. There's nothing personal or emotional within this. So salespeople especially want to be careful not to ask too many data questions, at least not strung together in a row, because you're missing opportunities to build rapport then. And do you find that sellers tend to ask too many data questions of buyers? Yes. it's um, These are called safe questions by a lot of sellers. They feel safe. I, I'm not going to get too nosy. I'm not going to make you defensive. I'm not going to put you on high alert to, you know, put up the the garlic and the, and the cross, get away. <laughs> um, so they, they park here in these data questions and then they can't figure out why the relationship isn't progressing anywhere. Yeah. And the person probably doesn't like the question. It really it becomes like an interrogation. Similarly, explain what you mean when you write that most managers ask far too many data questions and not nearly enough of the other seven that we're going to talk about. Because data is task-focused and managers tasked with managing the work of today and getting things done in the short term, thinking about KPIs, they sometimes forget that these are whole humans that come to work who need to be stimulated in, in other ways as opposed to just the job, just mm -hmm. the facts, task-based. Just the facts, ma'am. So let's go to I. Issue questions. Explain what you mean when you, you write, if you're not part of the question, it's not an issue question. Yeah. This is the question that's all about you and about the relationship, and about the services, or whatever it is that you're providing to the other party. An issue question might be proactive. You want the relationship to be good. You want to understand what people need or expect from you. So it's a question like, Douglas, now that you and I are working together for the third time on one of the, the, these podcasts, what could I be doing differently that would improve my contribution to your podcast? Okay, that's about me. And so it's an issue question, and it's a, a question that I want to get out on the table. So it's not something that you hold back on telling me. You give me a chance to improve instead. A lot of times, though, issue questions are reactive. We didn't ask ahead of time. We didn't uh, troubleshoot. So here we are. We've got a situation. And the 
buyer says something like, uh, your service, your quality, X, Y, Z, and we freeze, we duck, dodge, deny, defend, don't answer, uh, instead of asking an issue question that opens up the conversation. Oh, tell me more about what's going on here. What would you like to see in a resolution? Uh, how can we prevent this in the future? Anything like that that's about you fixing the problem is also an issue question. So issue questions are a tool for problem recognition within relationships. So, you know, conversely, you asked me, I, I guess a good example of an issue question is, Deb, is there anything I could be doing better as an interviewer to make this a more successful appearance on the Marketing Group podcast for you? Would that, would that be one? That's a great issue question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I know what you're going to say, Douglas, maybe a few uh, fewer stupid jokes and just don't talk so much. Let me do the talking. And I think the listener would probably uh, agree with that. But let me ask you, why do we seldom ask issue questions? Uh, they require two things. Vulnerability. I might not like what you what you say to me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm, my poker face may not hold up as yeah. I'm crushed when you tell me. Uh, but it also requires humility. I have to genuinely want to know and be willing to make changes and improve. If I'm going to be credible when I take into under advisement, whatever it is you offer me. But you know, if you can resolve an issue in a relationship, so many other things <laughs> work well in business. What was it? I think in your, was it in this book where you mentioned that I think Dale Carnegie said 90% of Problems in business are related to communication. Yes. So let's go to yes. solution questions. Solution questions introduce alternatives or promote idea generation. Okay. So explain why it is that when carefully crafted, solution questions are enthusiastically received. They liberate all kinds of brainstorming and creative juices. They, they enlist people in co-creating something that uh, they, they want because they're part of, of making it happen and thinking it up. This is, this is the space where people get to dream and conceptualize. Now, I get that not everybody loves the abstract and loves, loves to conceptualize, but even the most hardcore uh, non-abstract person wants to be considered wants their ideas and their contributions to, to be able to, to be a part of the conversation. Salespeople often think just the opposite about this. Hey, my job is to come up with the solution and then bring that back to the buyer. And they might have the most perfect solution, but yeah, the buyer's not part of it. They didn't have the experience of co-creating it. It's not nearly as engaging to them because their imprint's not on it. So, yes, solution questions. You write that sellers often get excited about their ideas and may overwhelm or lose buyers as they push ideas on them. A far better strategy is to involve buyers in co-creating ideas. Now, one thing from that that I think is important, and you talk about this a good bit in the book, a common problem with solution questions, I gather, is that they're very often too leading. Can you explain uh, that Carol. Yeah. How would you like it, Douglas, if I could appear on episode 763 of your podcast? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, it is specific question, uh, <laughs> Deb Calvert. Yeah. But I mean, I see it in sales calls. I see it with uh, managers. Uh, they're, 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 <laughs> they're too leading. It reminds me of, enough about me. What do you think of me? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So you're right. If it's too specific, if it's too narrow, I'm not liberating your thinking. I'm trying to corral you into my thinking. And I think people can sense that more than the questioners realize. Definitely. Yeah. Like um, when you get a cold call, for those who still answer the phone, I don't really do that much anymore, but they'll say, uh, so how are you today? <laughs> well, I always say, busy. Because then if I say, oh, I'm doing great, they'll go, oh, great. Well, do you want to donate to this worthy cause? Uh, so anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting off track here. You're nicer than I am. I, I now say things like, you have one minute. Is that what you really want to know? <laughs> oh, good, good. But you know, I know a, a sales trainer, a friend of mine, and he loved getting cold calls because he was able to convert a lot of them into customers. 
<laughs> so he, oh, he, he couldn't wait to get a, a bad sales call. Uh, so anyway, well, let's go to the next one. C. Consequence questions, which parenthetically reminded me a bit of Neil Rackham, spin selling, I, I, a kind of implications type of thing. Consequence questions call attention to potential risks or challenges. So what would be an example of a, a consequence question? Anything that, that brings to mind the downsides of action or of inaction. And, and you're right, full credit to Neil Rackham. There are three questions in the Discover model that first came into my mind because when I went into sales and I went to find books about how to sell, Spin Selling was the one and only book on the library shelves where I was looking. Mm-hmm. And it you know, really launched my sales career until I got to the point where I started thinking, well, wait, this isn't any of those kinds of questions. What is this thing? And that's how my research started. Anyways, backstory. Mm-hmm. So, well, and that uh, was like 1988, I think the book came out. And the only reason I mentioned that is because I still think there's not enough uh, consideration for in selling to say to the buyer or to help them discover what are the consequences if you don't do anything about this problem mm-hmm. you're inquiring about. You know, it helps them discover they're standing on an anthill, perhaps. You know, we were talking a moment ago about contracts, and so often salespeople will say, okay, their contract expires in six months, I'll call back in five and a half months. Well, most people make decisions a little sooner than the actual contract expiration. So if somebody tells you their contract expiration date, a consequence question is, what are the limitations if you wait until the contract expires or as it nears uh, that expiration. Mm. And, you know, then what are the advantages of starting sooner and gathering information? Anything, right, to keep the door open and not have to be something that the train moves on without you. So do you think that consequence questions are not used enough by sellers? By some sellers. Some sellers do a very good job of this. And I think there's a lot of sales training that, that supports using these questions. But there are also some sellers who feel like consequence questions are negative and not nice. Oh, I don't want to make anybody unhappy or sad about the potential consequences. I don't want to look like I'm manipulating them by making them feel bad, I've also heard. And to them, I say, well, I think it's a a kindness to help people look at something from every angle. If you see it and you're ahead of it, you ought to help them. (laughs) You're going to hold back help. It reminds me of a book that was on the show years ago called Stop Selling and Start Leading. Good book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I gathered that people are afraid to ask consequent questions because that it may trigger defensiveness or or resistance. What what are some ways to get around that? And I'm guessing the ideal response would be something like, God, I hadn't thought of that. That is the ideal response. And and so you frame it up that way. Uh, You say something like, maybe you've already thought about this if you're afraid they're going to be offended. Or you say, you know, I want to ask you a tough question because if I was in your shoes, I, th- I think I'd want to be on top of this. Maybe you already are. And then you ask the question. Right? There's a, there's, if your intention is there, there are many ways to frame these questions that will help you not turn somebody away from you, but bring them closer to you. If you think about the people in your life who you really, really trust, those are people who ask you the hard questions. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the next one. Oh. Outcome questions. Now, outcome questions explore hopes, dreams, plans, goals, or visions of the future. And I, you know, subconsciously or in, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing, I've used these in sales situations in the past. And I always thought of them as the magic wand question where I would say something like or, you know, give the impression of, you know, if, 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 I, if you could wave a magic wand. Uh, describe the outcome you're looking for. Is that would that be an example of an of an outcome question? Definitely. And see, I told you, you ask pretty good questions. Um, here's what salespeople do: they, they ask a lot of these, maybe not enough, but but they often start with these and they ask questions about hopes, dreams, plans, goals, visions, and then they jump right on their white horse and come on in to save the day with the solution that they have. Unfortunately. They might have missed some information along the way. So I, I don't want anyone to ever put all of their eggs in the one basket called outcome question. Mm-hmm. And buyers are kind of on top of this too. They know. 
they know that as soon as they put something out there about what they want, uh, a lot of sellers will just pounce without getting some additional context. It reminds me of the story from the same sales trainer. He, he said uh, the joke was the person, the buyer goes to the car dealership, walks in, a uh, salesperson says, uh, so what, <laughs> what brings you here? And they say, well, I'm looking to buy a car. And the salesperson says, have I got the car for you? <laughs> Classic. Yes, that's great. It's great. So explain for, to help everyone understand how the opposite of an outcome question is a consequence question. Oh, yeah. They're, they're like salt and pepper. They should travel together. Mm -hmm. um, reverse order, though. It's just that disawkward didn't make a word. So we put consequence first. But <laughs> an outcome question is, you know, what is it that you want to achieve? And then they give you an answer. Your follow-up question is, and and if you aren't able to achieve that, uh, then what? So you, you're showing both sides of the coin, mm -hmm. the positives, the hopes, the negative, the if nots. And when people think holistically like that, and they give you information to help them think holistically and to do something with it on both sides, they, they're selling themselves. These are micro commitments that they're making. From an interpersonal standpoint, yeah, amongst many others. Explain how outcome questions are what you call day brighteners. Well, we all get into these slumps, you know, day to day. Things look gloomy. We're caught up in the difficulties and the challenges. Getting reminded of the purpose, why we're doing what we're doing, where we're really heading, what it's all about. <laughs> Just try it sometime. It'll put a smile on almost anyone's face. Yeah, try it today, folks. There you go. Well, let's keep going here. The Value questions, which I think it outcomes, it leads into V very well. Value questions reveal priorities and clarify what's important and why now, uh, in case anyone's up. Uh, value questions reveal priorities and clarify what's important and why. Now, in case anyone's confused, explain why value questions are not about core values. I could see how that uh, confusion might occur. They might come from, they might flow from someone's core values. But think of these as uh, priorities or establishing a hierarchy of needs, understanding why it is that something is important to someone. And they do, they flow really nicely from an outcome question. If somebody gives you an outcome that they want, instead of pouncing to get context, you say, uh, how important is that to you? Yes. Sometimes the buyer will say, well, that's not very important. I mean, actually, it's this. <laughs> you know, and, and thank goodness you didn't pounce and try to solve something that was going to have minimal impact for them. Why do you think value questions are not asked very often? Well, here's the cynical answer. <sighs> Sometimes we just don't care enough to ask. Yeah. You told me the thing I wanted to hear, outcome. I can solve that. Let me go. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm now in sales mode. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just for salespeople. I mean, a lot of people, right? We're biased towards action. We want to deliver answers. So we, we go. This uh, V value questions reminded me of another book that was on the podcast years ago called Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella. And in that book, which is, you know, again, one of my favorites, and we've used it, it we, very effectively for clients, there's, there's five insights you want to probe for when you're talking to customers. Not during a sales call, but just doing research. And one of them has to do with what led you to the final decision. And what's funny to me is that most of the time, it's a disconnect from the company. In other words, the company says, oh, they're buying based on price. No, they're not. <laughs> There's actually other things they value that you could have just asked about to better understand. And then when you understand that, it makes your marketing so much better and your understanding of your customers better. I want to quote from page 177 quickly here. The most detrimental assumptions are the ones that result in viewing or treating all buyers the same, overlooking what each individual personally values drastically decreases sales effectiveness. And then you go on to write, use value questions instead of assumptions. Most sellers eke out an outcome question early in the qualifying or discovery phase, then they crash and burn because they don't seize that opportunity to personalize by asking a value question. So let's go to the next one. E. 
example questions. Transform abstract ideas into concrete examples that are tangible and related. And I suppose I was the least familiar with this type of question. So can you say more about what an example question is? Yeah, an example question makes things relatable. It it makes it more obvious to me what it will look like, feel like, be like if I go that direction. So you could call them comparison and contrast questions. Here's, Here's what it really accomplishes. When you go to the new car dealer to buy a car, they are really eager to put you behind the wheel of the car you're interested in so you take it for a test drive. Mm-hmm. And the reason they want you to, to get behind that wheel is because you can't help but start making comparisons. Oh, these leather seats, this is so comfortable. Ooh, this lumbar support. Right? Compared to my old clunker that I drove up in where the seats you know, are barely intact anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cup holder and the new car smell and the quiet ride. You know, all the things that you're contrasting in your head are attaching you to that car. They're helping you to visualize those reasons, personal and, and physical reasons that you need this new car. Most of the things that we sell, most of the things we do in our day-to-day lives don't have that same kind of potential for creating such a, a physically um, tangible sort of a comparison. Questions are our best tool then for getting people to, to do that mental exercise of, of creating comparisons. So there are questions like, well, walk me through what that used to be like and what it's like now that you are doing whatever you're now doing. Or give me a, an idea of where you are now and where you want to be. Mm-hmm. When you ask these questions, fair warning, people will think longer and they will give you much longer answers than they do for the other seven purposes of questions. So just be prepared for that. Allow the power of the pause to let people think and you know, just marinate themselves in, in these comparisons. And as they're answering, you're going to get a lot of negatives. You're going to get a lot of positives. You're going to get a lot of ammo for making the case that you want to make. Yeah, you're right. Use example questions to help others envision what doesn't exist yet. So finally, rationale questions pertain exclusively to decision-making, and their purpose is to understand how a decision has been or will be made. So a bad one was, what the hell were you thinking? Uh, In my experience, one of the most important things in sales was knowing or trying to get a handle on how the buyer or buying committee was going to make a decision to buy or not. You know, either one is fine. No is my second favorite word. Are rationale questions, in in your opinion, the most likely to generate a defensive response of all these? If you use the word why, which you mentioned earlier. Yes. Which is the most intrusive word, I, I think, when asking a question. Well, and it all depends on what you're asking about. Mm-hmm. When you question a decision that someone has made, that's already a little likely to put them on the defensive. Mm-hmm. When you add the word why, you really are are quite likely to put people on the defensive at, when you're talking about decisions especially because it feels like you're questioning me and my judgment, not just asking a question to understand my decision. This word is so high stakes in this context of a decision that it's the one and only word that is banned on a suicide prevention hotline if you're a volunteer who takes those calls. Really? Yes. The word why? Yes. Wow. This is on page 192. Replace why questions with alternatives like these. What was the catalyst for this decision? Walk me through the steps in your decision process. Which is funny to me because I would think most people are furious when they're asking these questions. (laughs) Tell me about your evaluation and how it brought you to this determination. Help me understand what was going on as you made this decision. How did you go about reviewing options and selecting this path forward? All of these questions I could have used when my wife brought home a new car one day. (laughs) Instead of, what were you thinking? (laughs) Well, now, so these questions... You said you might think people are furious. Um, I think it it builds 
good rapport with people and good business acumen for people in your organization. If you ask these questions when the decisions are good, when they're bad, when they're neutral, you're just conditioning people to think in these terms Mm -hmm. when they make decisions. And that's a good leadership tip, of which there are many in this book. So, Deb Calvert, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? In this day and age, I think it would be that clarity counts, right? Clarity leads to confidence. Confidence leads to courage. Stop asking people to be courageous if you're not giving them clarity. And the key to getting clarity is asking quality questions. Yes. And in fairness to Deb Calvert, I would say the first quarter of the book goes into great detail about the world we're in and why clarity is more important than it was and uh, how to deal with all that. But we we didn't cover too much of that in this in this conversation. But what's one thing a listener could do today? Just one to put in action one of the ideas from your book while they're waiting for it to arrive. Well, I think it would be about using questions for self-help. This book is actually trending really well in the self-help categories. So ask yourself questions to get clarity. No matter what you're doing, ask yourself questions that uh, challenge your own assumptions, help you recognize your own unconscious biases, keep you from making mistakes. It's questions like, uh, why do I believe what I believe? Or Mm -hmm. uh, what might somebody else believe about this? Um, What's the risk of proceeding before I consider alternate perspectives? And I can't remember which section outcomes. There was quite a bit about why you should be asking yourself a lot of these questions to help you be more effective and uh, (laughs) to deal with others better. I'm sorry, I can't recall exactly which which one that was, although it may have been in a couple of these. It, it was. Those hundred benefits of asking better questions include a lot. That's um, about personal effectiveness. And for those who are reluctant to try questions out on other people, well, you don't have to. Ask yourself. <laughs> Build your questioning muscle just all by yourself. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I'm super excited. I hope it comes tomorrow like Amazon says it will. Super excited about Adam Grant's new book. It's called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Great Things. Yes, that's been mentioned on the show by some uh, some other authors mm-hmm. as well. He He's one of those authors where if you could just say to Amazon, look, whatever they publish, just go ahead and send it. Right. <laughs> just take <laughs> Just take my money. Well, that's great. At the end of your book, you write about all the resources available to readers. And it's more than I'm used to seeing in a book. In other words, it's just very generous. I think it's a, it's a whole chapter. Can, can you talk about some of the resources that readers can can access? I'll mention one that's not even in the book because it, it got made up after the book was published because of some demand for it. So what you're saying is this is a marketing book podcast extra? You bet. Did you hear that, listener? Yeah. She's already over-delivering. She's already done it in the book. Here it goes. Well, it's Deb's Master Class for Asking Questions. And it's a three-part series, 90 minutes each part. I'm going to do it at least once a quarter in 2024. And what I'm doing for the next few months, at least, is if you want to get an autographed copy of the book within the U.S. where I can mail it without spending a fortune... (laughs) You can get an autographed copy of the book and the master class for just $35. And I'll mail that to you. We'll sign you up for the class. You can find it all at our Leadership Academy, People First Leadership Academy, which the URL is um, People First Potential, all spelled out. And it's intended just to help people go into this book and, and get more from it. Um, coming soon, here's a second bonus. We're going to have a whole book club syllabus and some great stuff about book clubs. That'll all be on the Academy, too. Oh, it'd be great for, um, again, I'm thinking, I'm having my sales hat on. It'd be great for like a sales manager for leading uh, some sales training. But you also have some free uh, resources as well. So if I want folks to know that. Yeah, we do. So pretty much everything that's covered in the book, things like sense-making and critical thinking and all sorts of stuff we haven't had time to talk about here, they're all backed by by tools, whether those be videos or classes or other reading materials. I, I did load it up on purpose. Okay. It's there, folks. It's there. Well, listen, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, uh, your website, 
uh, your LinkedIn profile. And now a word to you, dear listener. Please reach out to Deb and congratulate her on the book. Thank her for being a guest again on the Marketing Book Podcast. Guests on the show have told me they love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And if nothing else, share this interview on LinkedIn and tag us so we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Discover Questions for Connections, Clarity, and Control, 10th Anniversary Edition. The author is Deb Calvert. Deb, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm honored, Douglas. Thank you very much for hosting me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.